Would you please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 26. The title of the message this morning is Christ the Slave. Christ the Slave. Matthew 26 and verses 14 through 16 is our text this morning to consider as the Lord brings his word before us. I pray that this morning that you'll have ears on your hearts, that you'll have hearts to believe, to believe upon these words. These words are the words of life for us. And so it's as if we would bring a, a geyser or a fountain here into the middle of our ministry center to the, today, and we just let it gush out. So too, the word of God this morning has a great effect and has a great promise uh, to um, to bring for us this morning great life. Matthew 26 and verses 14 through 16 today. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Thus says the word of God. Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord to speak to our hearts this morning? Heavenly Father, had it not been for your grace and kindness, we would be far from you. You have gone through infinite lengths to come to us. We would have never come to you. And through Jesus Christ, you have demonstrated to us we who betray so easily, we who rejected your Son, looked upon him with scorn. And you still went to the cross. Father, this morning, may our hearts be renewed and refreshed and even more uh, transformed by the hearing of the gospel one more time by the hearing of the bad news that we are sinners and rebels and the good news that you came to redeem sinners and rebels. You knew exactly who we were and you still came. Oh, Father, we pray that the hearing of the word of God might be met with faith this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There's no way really to overstate how dark this part of the Bible is. Especially when you look at how it's situated in a literary way. Notice last Sunday, if you were with us, we, we looked at this beautiful vignette where Mary pours out the alabaster box upon Jesus Christ. And we just reveled at the beauty of what it is to worship Jesus Christ in such an unexplainable way. And that passage with Mary and the adoration of Christ, really the magnification of Christ, sits right before this. These verses of 14 through 16. The darkest hour in the history of the world. To, there is just no way to understate, there's no way to overstate how dark this passage is. Here we have Satan himself involved in one of the most previously loyal men to Jesus. 
And he's involved in turning over the second person of the Trinity into the hands of his own creatures as executioners. There has never been so great an act of betrayal in human history as what is recorded here. And it's remarkable that the gospel writers don't spend more time dwelling on this point in this turning point of the events in the life of Christ. And while the betrayal of Christ is without parallel, it is a picture of just how far a person can go to deny the lordship of Christ in their lives. Sin cannot be controlled when our hearts are given to it. Let me say that again. Sin cannot be controlled when our hearts yield to its power. There is an unmistakable warning through this passage that if you want to see how far your sin will take you, you can clearly see that it will take you away from the presence of God, even eternally, And it may even take you away from the opportunity to receive pardon and forgiveness. You may go so far, you may walk so long with sin, that you will never end up in repentance. The warning is clear. You cannot deny Christ and calculate that grace will save you on the other side. This morning, let's look at four truths in this passage and and look and see how they outline for us the marks of unbelief that may lead a person so far away from Christ that they will never seek repentance. Number one, loyalty to Christ is an essential mark of saving faith. Loyalty to Christ, allegiance to Christ, is an essential mark of saving faith. Judas, this is the second time that Judas has been mentioned so far in Matthew's telling of the life of Christ. If we were to only have Matthew's gospel, we would only know this next thing about Judas, really, in particular. We have seen Judas in the crowd of the disciples throughout many of the scenarios and circumstances. But here by name is only the second time that we find Matthew bringing up Judas by name. In Matthew 10, verse 4, Judas is listed as just a name of of many of the disciples in a list of their names. Now we're given a particular insight into who Judas is or who he has become as he's walked with Christ. It is interesting to know that his name, which, by the way, I don't know that any of us know anybody named Judas. Let me just take a poll. Do any of you, have any of you heard anybody named Judas or know of anybody? Cats ought to be named Judas, but ours is named Jade. But nobody names their son Judas or their daughter Jezebel. But notice that many people, many parents will name their daughter Mary, of which Mariah is a derivative. Notice that in this passage that we have Two names. Matthew has positioned them there. Remember, Matthew is editing the life of Christ. He's putting together a story. He's he's taking out facts and putting them and placing them. And he puts this here for us to recognize. Isn't there quite a contrast between the most beautiful name for a woman, Mary, and the most horrendous name in all of humanity for a man, Judas? 
Do you think that Matthew, and by the Holy Spirit, is trying to show us something here? Well, let's look into it a little bit. And first, the first truth I think that we see here is that, is that loyalty to Christ is, a, is an essential mark of saving faith. Mary, when she poured out the ointment upon Christ, she didn't count the cost. Now, the disciples had, you had, we had read earlier in this passage, the disciples said, could this have not been sold to, to take care of the poor? And likely it was about one year's wage. Imagine taking your whole salary and pouring on the head of someone else. A whole year's salary. But she wasn't calculating the cost. To her, there really wasn't a price, even though we kind of know what it probably costs. To her, it wasn't about the cost. It was no cost too much. No price too much to be paid to honor Jesus in her life. But for Judas, there was an exact cost. And it was 30 pieces of silver. In Exodus 21, verse 32, we read, If the ox gores a male or a female slave, the owner shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. And so for the price of a slave, the slave, uh, you know, one person, a servant working out in the field has been gored to death by another landowner's oxen to be recompensed, at least to, to make some sort of at least initial amends for this tragedy, 30 pieces of silver. One can't stop but think about Psalm 41.9, where the psalmist says, Even my close friends whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. It seems that this whole passage really is seated into the contrast of what allegiance to Christ looks like as compared to what, what disloyalty to Christ looks like, what betrayal looks like. Here we have the essence of the, some of the most, the most beautiful vignette of of, of devotion and worship and sincerity and wholehearted authenticity in, in glorying in Jesus Christ at the beginning of this passage and then right here on its heels is the ultimate act of betrayal and denial. Mary's sacrifice, if we were to put it into terms of cost, while, while we had mentioned it, really, it was a priceless sacrifice, it was, it was likely more than ten times the amount of what Judas had gained from the priests. And here we see that there is a contrast of Mary's loyalty against the blackness of Judas' disloyalty. We see that our allegiance to Christ as an aspect of saving faith is an essential mark of Christian discipleship. Mary didn't count the cost, but Judas did. The second truth we find in the, in the mark of, of loyalty and allegiance to Christ is, is, is that we learn that Satan leads astray those who will not believe upon Jesus Christ. Those who will, those who will not turn to Christ are easily turned, are easily guided, are already guided by the devil himself. He loves to trample on, he loves to, to lead on those who will look away from Jesus Christ. And so he does in this passage. Matter of fact, in John 13, there's a sort of a parallel situation going on here. In John 13, 27, John records it this way, this instance. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Luke also records that the Satan is involved in the conspiracy of Judas. 
In Luke 22, beginning in verse um, 26, Jesus answered, is it, it is he whom I have given this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Well, Judas betrays Jesus and we see that he goes to the chief priests and the scribes and he seeks after these 30 pieces of silver. But all of the writers of the Gospels don't go into describing for us the motives of Judas. And think for, about that for a moment. What is the motive of Judas? Why is he betraying Jesus? There are likely two signs or two clues that we have, but we don't know exactly the motive for his betrayal of Jesus, apart from the fact that he was unwilling to look at Jesus as his Messiah. And the fact is that really there could be a complexity of motives and there can be a total undenial, but there is no way to calculate in an unbeliever's heart all of the motives for the denial of Christ. The fact is that the human heart, without the grace of Jesus Christ, is wholly capable of not only one motive, but multiple and complex motives, motives in denying Jesus Christ. Because at the root of, of, um, of denying Christ is the ultimate sin, and that's really just unbelief. Unbelief in Jesus Christ, listen, leads to a multitude of wicked motives. Let me say that again. Unbelief in Jesus Christ leads to unimaginable, diverse, and multiplication of wicked motives. When Satan has entered into the heart here, he has seen an open door because of the unbelief. I said that there was some clues, and there, th these seem to be at least um, apparent parts of motives, or at least believable motives, and I think they can serve to us as an example of, of what it is um, when Satan leads the heart astray, and that is, first of all, disillusionment. Judas had, it had been revealed throughout the accounts here, that Judas was a zealous patriot for Israel. Uh, many of the, the disciples were, by the way. Likely all of them really were zealous for Israel. They wanted God to bring back Israel's priority and its supremacy in the world. They wanted a great king. They wanted the David's son to sit on the throne and show Rome who's who. They wanted Caesar to be demolished and, and oppression to be ceased and to, to really own their territory again. You remember when God sent them away to Babylon and they returned back to Israel, they never really fully gained their autonomy. They never gained their sovereignty. And so really for hundreds of years, even until this passage, they, they, were, they were pining away, they were grieving, and their heart ached because, because empire after empire just suppressed them. And so the disciples, on hearing that the Messiah, this valiant warrior that the Old Testament had, had prophesied would come and he would break the bonds and he would, the government would be upon his children, remember? And he would free them from the Roman oppression so that many of the disciples had become, become disillusioned that Jesus would become an, a, a valiant victor, conquer king. The fact is that he would become a greater king than they could ever imagine and that they ever would estimate when he would take away the sin, the kingdom of sin from the heart of man. But he must die to become king, to become a greater king than what they were even desiring. And so Judas was likely disillusioned that Jesus was not who he thought he was. Jesus has now, at least according to the book of Matthew, prophesied 
his own death three times that he would be crucified, that he would die. This isn't the, the, the theme. This isn't an election. This isn't a campaign motto, is it? Vote for me. I'll die for you. Judas was putting things together and recognizing that Jesus wasn't going to go to Rome. Jesus wasn't going to go to Herod's palace and Pilate's house and overthrow Rome. And if he wasn't going to do that, then he's good for nothing. And his estimation of what God's plans were was far too small. By the way, to overthrow the Roman Empire... That's a mighty thing to, uh, to dream about. It was still too small. Jesus was to do greater things than overthrow Rome on the cross. So he became disillusioned because he wasn't the Messiah whom he thought he needed. By the way, who do you think you need God to be for you? There is often time within walking with Christ when we too succumb to the lies and deceitfulness and and really the short-sightedness of who we think we want God to be for us. And we put our own definition upon God. We put our own limits on God. And we think that it's not a limit. We think it's a grand plan for God. We think if, 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 if God could do something amazing, like overthrow the most powerful empire on the planet, like Rome, That would be really great. And we have these plans for God, and we have these purposes for God, and we have these these gross, really underestimations for God, but God sits supreme and sovereign and knows way beyond even these great dreams that we have of things that need to be done that are greater than what we could ever conceive. Judas might be a lot like us in many ways as we put our own definitions upon Christ and upon God. God, if you would just do this, and God says, if I did that, that would be such a small thing. I have greater plans than your prayer. And we become disillusioned because he doesn't answer our prayer. He doesn't answer to our definition. But how... How blasphemous is that for us to put our constraints upon the God of the universe who is up to, by the way, better things than you could ever conceive or imagine. Disillusionment. Judas was likely disillusioned. But secondly, we also see that it could have been greed. It is interesting that we do note that this is the price of a slave. It's not entirely a huge price probably about a month's wages. Not a really big thing to think about in when you're going to betray someone, maybe a month's wages. What's, what's an assassin's price, right? Judas seemed happy with that much, and we find out actually from the other gospel writers that he's been skimming a little off the top anyways from the coffers of the disciples. So likely this 30 pieces of silver combined with other money is that he's been extorting from the coffer gives to him at least some some sort of gain but really in the grand scheme of things obviously it's such a paltry amount 30 pieces of silver 
But in the essence of this, it, it really is striking to us to recognize just the fact ought to sit here that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is betrayed for a couple thousand dollars. I mean, let that sit there. So what is it that's driving him in this motivation of greed? Is that Christ isn't enough. He's not enough. There's got to be more. And I'm going to get it. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Jesus, move aside. I'm going to force my will. I'm going to manipulate. I'm going to scheme. I'm going to, I'm going to conspire until I get what I want. But know this, Christ, you are never enough. Let me ask you something. Would it have been any different had Judas received a million dollars? Or like the golfers who are going to Saudi Arabia for hundreds of millions of dollars? Would that still have been enough? What does Jesus cost to you? I mean, just even saying that nine figure that I just mentioned for those golfers you've heard about, nine figures, we would all be pretty happy with that money, notwithstanding who it's coming from. Would that make you more happy? than having five minutes of devotion with Jesus Christ. We're all ashamed to answer that question because we all know we're still learning what it is for Christ to be enough, don't, aren't we? He's not enough. We confess that this morning. Lord, forgive us. Christ wasn't enough for us this week. We demonstrated it over and over. We were full of anxiety. We were full of indulgence and gluttony. Christ wasn't enough. So greed, we can identify with that, can't we? Now Judas doesn't seem so much not like us, right? But number three, faith in Christ is required among those who know of him. You see, as we had seen in Ephesians 1.13 this morning in our passage to memorize for this month, that it wasn't enough for us to just hear the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, for we must believe upon it, trust upon it. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews and chapter 6. The writer of Hebrews speaks about many who had heard about God and his saving mercies through the coming Messiah, and even many who had probably even uh, been fed by Christ in, like, for example, the feeding of the 5,000, although it isn't directly alluded to in this passage. Hebrews chapter 6, 
Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on into maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings. I'm sorry, let me... um, Yeah, so uh, continuing in verse number three, and this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Notice their past tense of what they had been doing. They had received the, the hearing and the benefits of the gospel, even the gospel community, God's people. They had even seen the power of the Holy Spirit. They had received the benefits and the kindness of God's goodness and had been under the hearing of the word of God and had seen miracles of the power of God like that of the age to come. But in verse number, in verse number six, they've fallen away. That is, they backed away from all of these things, it is impossible to restore them. Why? Because right now in their present condition, the end of verse number six, they are esteeming the finished work of Jesus Christ insufficient. They are continuing to crucify him and holding him in contempt. What he did was not enough for them. What he did was not enough to cleanse them from their sins. What he did was not enough to secure for them eternal joy in their estimation. They had been around church. They had been around the people of God. They had, they had received good feelings but they had never received internally, they had never believed upon internally the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's entirely possible that someone can be walking with Jesus Christ, for for example, like Judas, for three and a half years and seeing the lepers cleansed and the blind see and the lame walked and and the, the dead raised to life and had wondered and had been in awe over the teacher's words. And it is impossible for that person, if they will not humble themselves to the finished work of Jesus Christ, it is impossible for them to know what it is to be delivered, to know what it is to be forgiven. You see, faith in Christ is required, not just knowledge. A personal trust upon Jesus Christ. Judas, of all people that have ever walked on this planet, Judas was one of the most extremely privileged people. He heard the teaching of the most powerful teacher in world history. He enjoyed the company of 11 of the most godly men. He witnessed hundreds of dynamic miracles, so many so that John says he couldn't contain them in a book. 
he experienced love and grace from Jesus Christ personally as a friend. He was entrusted with the treasury of of God's people, of this band of, of disciples. He enjoyed a great many privileges. And this tells us something. That you can still be a person unchanged by the grace of the gospel. Judas is perhaps the greatest example of this ever. He heard the Sermon on the Mount with his own ears. He saw these miracles. He saw the resurrection. He saw the healings. He saw how Jesus responded with mastery of the word of God to the teachers of the land. And he saw the perfection of Jesus. Never once, never once a foul word or a mouth of guile. Never once a word in retribution or anger in unrighteousness. Walking along Jesus Christ never saw a a worry or a doubt upon his brow. And never saw angry frustration or discouragement or despair. Never saw Jesus walk in faithlessness or lack of submission to his heavenly Father. Never saw Jesus rise above his station in pride and self-glory. Never saw a single blemish or flaw in Jesus. So while he saw all the amazing and glorious works of Jesus Christ, even upon close examination, He never saw a flaw in the sinless Son of God. Judas perceived perfection. And it was insulting. He still betrayed Jesus. And believer, if this doesn't make you tremble a little bit, if this doesn't scare you, in understanding that someone could be in the very presence of Jesus and having witnessed every earthly miracle and his infinite holiness and still walk away from him. This ought to scare you. It ought to scare you in the right direction, but it ought to be something where we pause. If it doesn't make you tremble, if it doesn't make you check your spirit, I would submit to you nothing will. There's nothing that you could ever read or hear that wouldn't make you. No man had a greater advantage than Judas, and yet Judas still betrayed Jesus. That's a warning to us. By the way, maybe you're sitting here today, or maybe you're listening online here today, and maybe you're sitting here and The Lord is speaking to you. And he has shown you all things. And now you're realizing, you know, I need to lay down my pride. And I don't want to betray him anymore. And I need him to forgive me of my unbelief. I need for him to forgive me. 
of not trusting in him. You know, Jesus, when he goes to the cross, he dies for every sin. The sin of betrayal. There's also another sin that he dies for, and it's point number four, the sin of presumption. Now, this passage doesn't directly uh, outline presumption, but I'd like for us to to go into this. And the fourth um, truth we find in this passage is sinning against hope is a dangerous proposition. Sinning against hope is a dangerous proposition. And for a moment, I'd like for us to, to think about and talk about presumptuous sins. Perhaps you're sitting here and saying, saying, well, I can... I know that God's grace is so free. I know that God's goodness is so accessible that I can, I can move into a sinful choice. I can move into a decision and know that God's forgiveness is going to be on the other side. I'll be okay. It's easier to do something now and ask permission later, so to speak. It's easier to just do what I want now because I know God has infinite forgiveness and I'm going to calculate that down the road... If I have regret, if the sin starts to cost me, if my, if my choices lead me down a path where I realize that this doesn't need to be a part of my life anymore and I'm full of regret, at that point, I know Jesus saves. I know Jesus will have me because Jesus loves to forgive. Jesus is love. Sinning against hope is a dangerous proposition. What Judas does here is a permanent and really inscribed and inspired reminder to us that it is a, it is a dangerous thing to enter into an, an opportunity to sin, to plan sin, to think about sin and to think about the other side of sin. There are several people throughout Scripture who, who presumed upon the outcome being good in what they were doing was wrong. For example, Nadab and Abihu assumed that God would accept their, their, their incense in Leviticus chapter 10 and Exodus chapter 30. They presumed that God, would, that God would be pleased with their sacrifice, even though it wasn't as God had prescribed. Uzzah, who was alongside of the card of the Ark of the Covenant as David was returning it back into Jerusalem and back into Israel, um, Israel, uh, Uzzah assumed that God wouldn't mind if he reached out and kept the Ark from touching the ground. Israel as a nation assumed that God would give them victory against the Philistines just because the ark was present like a lucky rabbit's foot in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 3 through 11. The fact is that really all through our Bible and probably more like our lives too, if we were to write out and to catalog our presumptuous sins, it might look more like a phone book of names, of people, and opportunities where we presumed upon God's grace. And I'd like to dig into this just a tiny bit further. The psalmist says, says the psalmist pleads with God in Psalm 19.13. The, psalm, the psalmist pleads with this. By the way, this is a great passage to meditate on and to take away from this, this sermon this morning. Psalm 19.13, Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. 
Oh Lord, let it not be that I would sin a sin of presumption. I'd like to read a little bit of what one author said about presumptuous sins as compared to faith. Because I think he makes a great point and I couldn't say it better. So listen as he says this. There are two characteristics of presumption compared to faith. By the way, do you hear the element, at least, of faith in presumption in the sense of I'm going to do it knowing something? It's almost like a twisted form of faith, isn't it? Two characteristics of presumption compared to godly faith. First, presumption starts with an assumption. But faith starts with a promise. Okay, presumption starts with an assumption, something you assume. But faith begins with promise. Those who sit, he says, on a premise, instead of standing on a promise, he says, slips over a precipice. Faith says, God will give us this day our daily bread. Unbelief says he won't. Doubt says he might, but presumption believes the bread must be hot and buttered. An assumption. He says it might be, but God's under no obligation that that bread be buttered. Abraham could sacrifice Isaac because God said, in Isaac your seed shall come. A specific name attached to the promise. Abraham was holding fast unto the promise. It was not an assumption. Secondly, this author says, secondly, presumption seeks to manipulate the outcome. Faith waits patiently. That sort of rings well with us, doesn't it? Presumption manipulates to get the outcome, but faith is willing to wait for the outcome. Like in Hebrews 6.15, by the way, is reference, whether it's Hagar being given to Abraham to bring about the promised seed, Rebekah deceiving Isaac to fulfill Jacob's destiny, or Moses murdering an Egyptian to help free his brethren, manipulation never advances God's promises. It only hinders them. But faith knows that God's will will be done God's way and will never lack God's supply. It's likely, by the way, stay with me on this, it's likely Judas is not being presumptuous in this passage. It's likely that he's not. We know that according to Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10, later on in the book of Matthew, Matthew will account that Judas will regret what he had done and he will throw the silver into the temple and he will run and he will hang himself out of regret. But he does not seek repentance. He does not seek forgiveness. So Judas is likely not an example of presumption. But the point that, that we're making here in this passage as we look into this is that in his regret, he never landed into forgiveness. He never landed into repentance. And the sin of presumption and sin can take you so far that you don't even know what repentance is. Yielding unto sin can take you so far away from the view of Christ that you don't even know what forgiveness looks like and you don't even remember the promise. And I think that's where we can land in this idea of saying Judas was not presumptuous. He ran headlong into this sin. And on the other side, 
totally rejected, totally was outside, couldn't do anything to bring upon himself repentance. And really all of us here, we've all experienced repentance and we've all been washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Judas is always out there before us in in this example and in this text and maybe we could even see people in our lives with our mind's eye who we know are running headlong into willing sin, willful sin. And it might be that they go so far that they will never be able to turn away. They will never come back from it. They take a step and they've gone too far and they'll never return. And this doesn't speak about the, uh, a merciless nature of our God. Our God is full of mercy. But it speaks to just how far the sinful heart will take a person. That's what it speaks to. Don't get the two mixed up. Don't believe, don't get, believe for one second God isn't merciful. It is, a, it is an, it, an incredible warning. It is something that we can't emphasize enough how devastating, how defeating, how devious our hearts are. Where we predict and we can try to predict the outcome and think we're going to be okay on the other side. And listen, brothers and sisters, we presume upon God's grace far too often and praise Him He is merciful. But woe be unto the person who presumes upon God's grace and walks through sin and never finds repentance. And that's exactly what Judas reminds us of. He's the man who took a step from which he could never extract himself away from. What he had done could never be undone. And this, by the way, is a characteristic of sinful choices is knowing that there is a cost that will be paid by sinful choices where, where what, can, what is done cannot be undone. And wow, this couldn't be undone, could it? Praise the Lord, by the way. Because it will lead to our salvation, which brings us into conclusion in all of this, Jesus is in complete control of how he will be delivered. In all of this, Jesus is writing the script. Jesus has already told the disciples, I will offer myself freely. I will not die at the hands of man, of sinful man. I will deliver myself up to be crucified. I will be the ransom. In all of this, Jesus is in complete control with how he will be delivered. He will deliver himself through the means of the most depraved actions of mankind. The darkest passage of Scripture is the prologue to the greatest day in history. It is inscribed, it is embedded into the redemption plan of God that the most sinful act, we could say in in many ways, the most sinful act of the most betraying friend of Jesus Christ becomes the means by which Jesus gloriously has provided for your salvation and mine. The chief priests, Judas, and even Satan himself will be used against themselves 
to deliver the atoning sacrifice for the sins of mankind. The devil is plotting, the priests are screaming, scre- uh, scheming, and Judas is betraying, and God is saving. All simultaneously. They are unwittingly, and by the way, unwillingly, had they had known anything, used by their sovereign God to undo everything they were seeking to do. It is with this security of the knowledge that we can know that Jesus would offer himself as a sacrifice for all who will come to him. Whether they will be like Mary, who will come humbly, or like Judas, who should come broken but didn't, Jesus goes to the cross to save all who will turn to him. Let's pray.